Welcome to episode 236. No, wait, is this 235 or 236? This is 235 of the Actual Astronomy <laughs> Podcast, the objects to observe in the July 22 night sky. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky in this podcast. Is anybody else who likes going out under the stars? So yeah, I got a little bit confused there, Shane. We're working on a whole pile of episodes at the same time, and I've kind of got them all teed up like planes uh, ready to take off from the tarmac. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, it's a busy time, um, and I think we're going to try to fit in a few more recordings than maybe we usually do, just so that we can maybe have a day off over the summertime. Yeah, and uh, strangely enough, do some observing, because we have, uh, you know, some observing plans that uh, will otherwise eat into uh our uh, our recording cadence, eh? Yeah. Well, and now that Ju uh, June twenty first is behind us, the days start to get uh, a level. the The nighttime gets longer and the daytime gets shorter, and that means darker skies for us again because we're we, we're still in this perpetual twilight. But at least we're now coming out of it, and we'll have dark skies pretty soon. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. So, uh, did I see you bought the uh, Jumbo Pocket Atlas? Or did Mike buy it? Somebody bought it. I, I, you guys put me in that group chat and then I couldn't figure out who bought it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I purchased it uh, as well as um, another recent ad is that Messier Marathon Field Guide, which okay. is awesome. But yeah, the the uh, Jumbo Pocket Sky Atlas is the exact same charts as the Pocket Sky Atlas from Sky and Telescope, which is probably one of my favorite in the field guides to use. Um, but the nice thing with the jumbo edition is it's just, everything's bigger. So it's easier to read. And, um, you know, as, as I age up, uh, I find that I'm struggling a little bit more at night to read some of these star charts. So, uh, the jumbo edition is great. Um, it's, uh, the one that I have is hard covered. I'm, I'm not sure if you can get a soft cover version or a paperback, um, but it's coiled. So, you know, you can, okay. You can open it up and and just like fold the cover on itself, and um, you know weight wise it's not too bad, but it's it like I think it's the ideal size for for me anyway in my eyes uh, to be using at the telescope. Um, so I've I've basically got three versions of the Sky Atlas. You know I've got the Pocket <laughs> Sky Atlas, I've got the yeah. Jumbo Pocket Sky Atlas. And then I have like the desk one that's laminated, yeah. that's gigantic. And that's yeah. not one you can use right at the telescope. Like you, you yeah. need a table for that. You go yeah, look I've at it. Then, yeah. yeah. So uh, this one is just uh, really good. The, the paper quality uh, feels uh, like it's a heavier bonded paper and it has a bit of a, like a shinier finish to the pages. So I think it'll like, you know, it's not dew proof, I'm sure, but I think it'll withstand dew. Yeah a lot better than, than the, you know, the pocket sky Atlas that I have, cause it's all wrinkly from getting wet and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, right now I, I'm saying that the jumbo pocket sky Atlas is a, a big recommend on my part. Uh, I think I'm going to really enjoy using this. Yeah. So this is the, uh, jumbo, uh, pocket Atlas, um, by sky from sky and telescope magazine. I think it was out of print for a while. Now it's, now it's back in print and yeah, we have no relationship with sky and telescope magazine. Um, although we did just have a guest on who, who writes for sky and telescope magazine. I'm just a regular subscriber and, uh, and, and do know some of the contributing, um, writers and, uh, and really, really enjoy the articles that they write. And that's how I do a lot of my observing. It's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. 
Um, one thing I'm going to note though, Shane, and, and you're doing this as well, is we tend to prefer actually using um, the physical star charts under the nighttime sky. I know that's how I observe. I think it's how you observe. Well, why do we do that over observing, um, say, with uh, with software on a on a iPad or a cell phone or, or a computer? Why do we use physical uh, star charts with red lights instead of instead of using uh, digital technology when when it's so widely available? Two, two big reasons for me. Uh, number one is often I find the digital stuff to be too bright. Um, and I know you can get overlays and you can tune the lighting and all of that kind of stuff on your phone or tablet. Uh, but I still usually find them just too darn bright. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes even when you do all of that tuning, uh, sometimes like it doesn't apply to a lock screen or something like that. So you still get blasted by, you know, some white light uh, right. at times. Um, right. so yeah, I just don't like it for that. And then the other aspect is a lot of these devices don't do well when it's cold out and yeah. even in the summertime, it can get kind of chilly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's that, um, and maybe even a third one here is, um, like these devices are not inexpensive and I don't want to drop one on the ground, especially oh, yeah. if I'm observing like, you know, on my cement patio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, the book, you know, a book with a red flashlight is ideal for me or, or like a physical medium. It's just, it works and it, it, you know, removes all those other issues. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to chime in with another um, comment on, on why I, I like to use them. It's a fairly simple one. And that's that when I first took um, a computer out or a cell phone out or, you know, different device out into the field, um, the one thing I noticed was that. Uh, you can zoom in and out infinitely, which is amazing when you're sitting at home and you're sort of exploring the universe and trying to figure what you want to what you want to take a look at. And I thought, well, this is going to be amazing out in the field. But there were two things. One of them you already mentioned, which is that um, as we age, our eye works different at night. And those screens aren't designed to be used at night, not just for brightness, but also for things like image scale and resolution and, and all of that stuff. And when you go and buy a, uh, a printed atlas, something like the Jumbo uh, Pocket Atlas from, from Sky and Telescope, is they have thought through that. And that although when you, when you open up in the daytime, you're not going to notice this as much, but the print quality, the way the stars and the lines and everything are drawn, are actually drawn to show up well when you have your little dim red flashlight on at night. So it actually makes it really easy to, uh, to use the atlas and navigate with the stars. The other yeah. thing, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's a great point. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing, and this never occurred to me, this was actually around the time when digital technology came out and I was messing around with um, Barnard's um, star charts and I was printing off digital versions and I was laminating them and taking them out into the field to use. And the first thing I noticed compared to software um, because the, the astronomy software was really coming out as I was getting into astronomy. And I just assumed that's what I was going to be using under the stars. But the, the thing that I recognized almost immediately is that people that are making um, star charts are doing it in such a way that the scale from where your eye is to the chart is they're, they're trying to sort of guesstimate that scale of looking up at the sky, maybe if it's um, like a more basic chart mm -hmm. or the types of instruments that you're going to be using. 
and the types of magnifications you're going to be using either as a finder or as a low power eyepiece in a small telescope. So someone's really gone through a lot of trouble to figure out that scale. But when you take out the software, you have to play with it to try to figure out what that scale is. And it's kind of like learning to use a, a focuser or something. And, and I could never figure out, like it, I spent a long time messing around with like the zoom level. And sometimes I'd be looking at something and I keep zooming in and then I get lost. And um, although when you're sitting at home in a nice comfortable room, it's all good. But when you're out, it's minus three or minus 10 and you're trying to mess around with this stuff. Or even in the summer when it's uh, plus three or plus 10, um, it gets a little bit frustrating. And so what I tend to do, as you know, is I just mark my pages with the stuff I want to look at. I turn to it and then I've got little sticky notes beside the object I want to look at. And then I go right to it. But uh, the the software doesn't, doesn't really seem to be able to replicate that experience yet at this time. Maybe it will, but uh, it just doesn't quite do it for me yet. So like you, I have lots of star charts and, uh, and can't wait to see what the uh, Jumbo Pocket Atlas does uh, under the next guy for you. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm, uh, I'm excited for it. And I'm excited because I received a two inch adapter for my comet catcher. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm also excited for that. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So I took a, a 1982 or an 84, um, Celestron orange tube that was made when I was, uh, you know, in elementary school. Um, I just bought it used for a couple hundred bucks and, uh, turning it into a wide field machine by buying various adapters until I found the right one. Um, to uh, to meet uh, modern two-inch uh, well-corrected eyepieces uh, to an F3.5 system. So, yeah, very excited for that. All right, let's talk about what people can see this month. I'm really excited um, for July to roll around on the calendar because uh, the sky will be getting dark again and we'll be back in the park uh, doing some dark sky observing. Yeah, exactly. Um, July kind of marks the return to dark sky observing for us. And, yeah, I'm super excited for it too. Yeah, and that won't come along until after first quarter, which is on the uh, on the seventh. Um, so, kind of throwing something a little different out. I was looking at this because I'm the editor for the RESC um, Observer's Calendar, and July third actually gives you the opportunity to see Arcturus um, before sunset during the first week of July. Have you ever tried other than the sun? Because because I don't want to go there. But other than the sun, have you ever tried to see a star during the daytime? Not a star. No, I've, I've observed the planets like, uh, yeah. Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, during daylight, but not, uh, not a star. No. I'm trying to remember. I might've seen, uh, and I didn't hunt it down. I think someone hunted down uh, Cirrus once and showed it to me through, mm -hmm. uh, through a telescope, but, uh, mm -hmm. that, that was a long time ago. Arcturus though, first week of July. Um, always have to be careful if you're taking the telescope out before sunset, not to, uh, not to catch a glimpse of the sun through the telescope, of course, that will uh, cause immediate eye damage. Um, but I believe during the first week of July, it's uh, it's appreciably uh, Arcturus would be appreciably far away from uh, from the sun, and probably uh, what you could do is use uh, one of your go to telescopes or something like that to get it in the field. But uh, yeah, be very careful because, of course, uh, when the sun is up, uh, typically I'm I'm not pointing a telescope at the sky at all. <laughs> yeah, it can be dangerous, but uh, yeah, that would be a neat observation to be able to catch a star during uh daylight or twilight yeah, yeah. on july 7th though that's when you have the first quarter moon and uh, hopefully the start of uh of when it actually is getting dark um and then the lunar straight wild is visible that night so uh first quarter moon chain um always sort of need to see it hanging in the nighttime sky and one thing i'm going to recommend uh to people before you talk about the straight wild is uh 
is if you're a person who's never used binoculars on the night sky, or maybe, maybe you have, um, it's always really amazing just to take your binoculars and to point them at that first quarter moon, or it sort of looks like a half moon in the sky. Um, Cause you can see a lot of craters in that um, right along the, the edge of, of where the illuminated portion meets the un unilluminated portion, which we uh, call the Terminator, but that's always a pretty big blast to do even for us experienced amateurs. eh? Oh yeah, absolutely. Lots to see. Um, it, it never gets boring. If you have a little telescope though, you can see the lunar straight wall. So what is the lunar straight wall, Shane, and, and how can people see it uh, on the moon uh, around the uh, July 7th date? Yeah, the, the lunar straight wall is, uh, again, it's a clair-obscure effect, meaning kind of a shadow play with the way certain areas of the moon are illuminated versus in shadow. And essentially what this is, is a ridge on the moon in a very flat area. Um, but at certain times of the month, the way the sun casts a shadow, it looks like somebody just took a, like a Sharpie marker, a black marker and drew a, a almost a perfectly straight line and, uh, through a telescope, it's, um, it's really neat to see, and it's also quite large. So you, you really can't miss it. If you're out observing on July the 7th, um, it should be, uh, quite, quite interesting. And with all of these clear obscure effects, the other thing to remember is that it does change minute by minute, although you probably won't detect it. Um, but as, as the, um, uh, the, the angle of the sun is changing and it's just constantly changing. So, so do these effects evolve in terms of their appearance. So if you are observing the lunar straight wall on the seventh, um, observe it kind of early in your observing session and then come back to it periodically and just see if it's changed at all in terms of how large it is or any of the other characteristics that, uh, you see. So summer's coming and, uh, you know, you might be enjoying a, a, a pop or a soda as they call it in the States, um, or some sort of other beverage. And, you know, if you're sitting around at home, you have a nice coffee table, um, you know, you need to put it down. Now, if you're from the East Coast, you might say you need an East Coaster to put your beer on. But on the July 13th, the full moon is going to cause some large tides for those on the coast. And that can be, uh, you know, something really to take, uh, take a look at. I know it was always fascinating growing up, uh, you know, and watching those um, larger tides um, and lower tides, uh, you know, of particular interest because uh, you'd be able to walk out on the mud flats in, in front of the front of the place where, uh, where I grew up, it was always kind of interesting to go out there and try to pull up some uh, razor clams or, or dig for some uh, regular clams and, uh, and, and go through that kind of uh, intertidal experiment when you're a little kid is always a lot of fun. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I'm a prairie boy through and through. <laughs> July 14th, we have Saturn four degrees north of the moon. Now, we're going to have a lot of pairings of uh, the planets and, and the moon, which uh, although we're getting towards um, and we're around full moon, they're being on the 13th and just after it's, it's still going to look more or less full for, for the better part of uh, four or five days after full moon. Um, so too bright really to do any deep sky observing. But what I always like at this time of year is that moon is sitting nice and low sort of in that saddle portion uh, of the ecliptic. Eh? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So make quite. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, quite low. And, um, you know, very, the, the best thing of the moon is it's the easiest object to find in the sky when it's up. So it, it makes for a great anchor point for some of these, uh, close pairings with the planets. Exactly. So by being able to find the moon so easily, um, you're going to be able to find things like July 14th, Saturn and the moon, 
um, just four degrees apart. And four degrees, if you hold your arm up at arm's length, um, or sorry, if you hold your fist up at arm's length, your fist is going to cover approximately, uh, it's going to span sort of 10 degrees of the nighttime sky. So if we're talking about four degrees, it's just under half of that. And uh, most binoculars are going to easily encompass four degrees. So if you just take your binoculars out and look at the moon, um, because the moon is going to be pretty bright and has a lot of glare to it, um, binoculars are going to help cut through some of that and to to reveal these planets uh, close into uh, to a just about full moon. Eh? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. On July 18th, Neptune is going to be three degrees north of the moon. And then on July 19th, just one night later, Jupiter is going to be two degrees north of the moon. That should be uh, easily visible just with your eye alone. Mm-hmm. And then on uh, on the 20th, we have last quarter. And I just got to put this in for fun was Pluto is uh, at opposition <laughs> in Eastern Sagittarius. So that, uh, yeah, that uh, that can be a bit of a, a bit of a stretch. Did you ever see Pluto before? It's pretty faint. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I don't think I've actually done the proper, um, uh, way to observe Pluto, which Pluto is extremely faint. So the only way to observe Pluto, cause it will look like a very faint star is <clears throat> you match up the star field and you record where you think Pluto is within that star field. And then you come back days later to see if it's moved. And if it's moved, mm-hmm. you can then say, I've observed Pluto. Um, so I've never really done that. Um, I've pointed a telescope where it should be, whether or not I've seen it. I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I haven't done it myself properly, but I've observed with people who have, and they've pointed it out to me through the telescope and, okay, I see that triangle of stars and then the one to the right of the, mm-hmm. of the tri- that's Pluto and that's kind of how I've seen it. And yes, it looks exactly like an extremely faint 14th magnitude star. Yeah. Not that uh, exciting. Yeah. Not that <laughs> exciting, unfortunately, but uh, yeah, Pluto uh, among the larger of the, the dwarf planets um, on July 20th. Of course, that's uh, also when we have the last quarter moon. So after that, then we're into nice dark skies. And that, that meets up pretty nicely here because um, you know, that's really when about we start to get a couple maybe even a, a few hours of real darkness that you can actually do some really productive deep sky observing with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's when I start to get excited again. Yeah. For those South of us, of course, once you get much South of, uh, of 50 degrees, you know, you do gain uh, quite a bit of darkness for every, uh, you know, hundred or so miles uh, South you go. So for those, you know, that are, that are below 50 degrees North, then uh, they're, they're probably still having, having darkness and never losing um, the night sky completely like we do. July uh, 21st, we have Mars, three degrees south of the moon, and there's an occultation for Japan. Um, just mentioning this because I do know we have listeners in Japan, so just mark that on your calendar, see if uh, there's an occultation for your point. Um, there's a few other places that uh, that you can see occultation from, um, but not North America. And I was just kind of, I go through and just kind of keep a general tally of um, where listeners are writing from. And so if I do note that something is happening in one of those areas, then I'll try to mark it. But no, I, I think that was the only place. Um, on July 22nd, though, Uranus um, is going to be uh, occulted by the moon. So the moon is going to pass in front of Uranus. And that's for um, South America and Europe. And I do know we have uh, observers in both of those locations. And then also on July 22nd, um, the lunar Curtis X is going to be visible. And did you ever take a look at that? I can't remember. I, f- I feel like I did try to hunt it down one night and, uh, and now I forget, I think it was like a year or so ago. 
Yeah, I don't know if I've chased this one. Um, I can't remember. I, this does not stand out to me, so I don't think I have. Yeah, I think it's another one of those clear obscure effects where it looks like there's an X and it's a combination of a couple of craters on the moon. But if you happen to have nice clear skies on July 22nd, maybe you're out looking for either the Uranus occultation or on that night. I mean, Uranus is going to be extremely close to them. I think it's like less than half a degree away for us uh, here in uh, in the central uh, North America. Um, but on that night as well, you could uh, check out, see if you can see an X uh, pattern along the um, Terminator, which is the night where, where the night and the, the daytime uh, zone meet on the moon, that shadow line, that's called the Terminator. And that's where this X will be visible. Yeah. Yeah. This one goes by another name of the Curtis cross as well. It looks oh, like. okay. Yeah. Just in case anybody uh, was, was wondering, but um, yeah, it, it, I guess it probably just depends on your orientation. It could be an X or a, a, a cross. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Uh, July 26th, Venus is going to be three and a half degrees south of the moon. Um, of course, that's going to be, uh, you know, uh, getting close to, uh, to sunrise. Um, so, you know, exercise that, uh, again, that solar caution, whenever you're observing when the sky is going to be bright and, uh, and we do always, uh, caution not to observe when the sun is above the horizon. Um, or if you do so, uh, use extreme, extreme, uh, caution not to be pointing anywhere near the sun. And on July 28th, that is our, our new moon. And I think around that time, I think that's when we're heading down to the uh, grasslands to do some uh, dark sky observing that weekend, um, with, uh, with the park. Yeah. I can't wait for that. Um, hopefully we have some good weather and some good skies for it, but mm -hmm. that time of the year, we usually we do the biggest threat, um, in midsummer for us is sometimes, uh, smoke from forest fires and grass fires, uh, you know, from all around. So, mm -hmm. uh, it was certainly an issue last year, but, um, we'll see how this one pans out. Yeah. I can see just a little bit of smoke right now, actually in the sky from, uh, from out here in, uh, you know, in Lake country kind of things. So hopefully, uh, it does blow away. I know it's kind of coming and going. Some days are exceptionally clear. And then some days just have a tinge. It kind of sort of is obscuring um, the 10 degrees closest to the horizon. But the time, time you look up directly overhead, it's fairly blue. So fingers crossed that uh, those fires get extinguished. I know we're having these big rainstorms that are coming through. So I think they just need to hit a couple more spots and, and we should be in the clear again. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. On July 29th. Now this year, you got to plan a little bit ahead, folks. So July 29th, that's going to be the Delta Aquarius meteor shower. And why we're raising this to people's attention, Shane, is because two weeks later, you know, this is just the day after new moon. Two weeks later, you're going to have full moon again, roughly two weeks later. And, uh, and that's when the Perseids take place. You won't be able to see the Perseids very well at all this year because mm. the Perseids are going to occur really close to the August full moon. So this is sort of our, our replacement meteor shower this year's July 29th to be on the lookout for the Delta Aquarius meteor shower. And there can be uh, quite a few meteors associated with that one as well. Yeah. And it's great when it aligns with a new moon, because many of us amateur astronomers will be out just doing general observing. Right. And when you have a meteor shower happening, it's just like a bonus. And, you know, it's quite nice to see these streaking through the sky. And I think because the Perseids tend to last over over really a couple of weeks, your mm. your chances of seeing some Perseids, and then I think there's even some. Yep. And I remember um, uh, Rick, who observes this sometimes. I think he's going to try to come down and observe with us this year. Um, he's a real meteorite rock star, I guess. 
And uh, anyway, he uh, he knows all these obscure meteor showers and was telling us about this meteor shower and that meteor shower. And there's a few that kind of overlap right at the end of July. So you don't need to know all the exact ones that you're going to look at. I don't think I'll ever know them. I think there's, you know, he was going on and on about all these different ones. It's super cool to have somebody out in the field telling you these things. Um, but at the same time, yeah, we're just seeing lots of meteors coming in um, right at the end of July. And uh, and that new moon being uh, around that time is going to, you know, make you perfectly placed to uh, to be able to see lots of meteors. I think I actually took a couple of days off around that just so I can go out and enjoy this meteor shower. Mm, yeah, that'll be great. Um, it's the best time of the year for us to do that kind of stuff just due to the the warmer temperatures and and it's uh, just easier, you know, it's it's enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. No, really excited. That's Friday. Yeah. So I, I think I did, uh, I think I did book it off anyway, I'll be under dark skies that morning and, uh, and taking a look for, uh, for meteors hundred percent for sure. I'm really looking forward to it. It was supposed to be clear, you know, um, past couple nights were supposed to be decent, but it rained. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm really hoping that, uh, that the clear skies do start to, uh, come around once again, once we're into dark, but Hey, it's okay. If it rains now, while well, we're still waiting for the skies to uh, darken down a bit. So, Shane, let's talk about uh, comets a little bit. We still have uh, a couple of comets uh, poking around there on the night sky. Um, we have comet uh, uh, 2017 K2 Panstars, which is, um, you know, really just a little bit brighter than 10th magnitude, 9.7th magnitude right now, making its way through off Ucas, uh, heading towards Scorpius. But it's actually not too far from Taurus Ponyatavi um, that, uh, that that Brian was talking about in, in our previous episode. So... Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it, go ahead. Yeah, and any comet brighter than tenth magnitude starts to become more intriguing for amateur uh, astronomers. Um, you know, small telescopes will show it, and you know, sometimes you can start to see some detail in terms of like puffiness. Um, sometimes maybe a little bit of an elongation to represent the tail. So, um, yeah, anytime there's a comet, like I say, that's starting to breach uh, brighter than tenth magnitude, I, I become interested. Yeah, and I think for anybody who uh, who's listening to this that uh, that is south of fifty and and has uh, pretty good dark skies, um, you know, when this podcast gets released, um, I would encourage you to go, especially if you have like a twelve or, or sixteen inch instrument. I, I think the larger the instrument, I, I think probably if you get into like a sixteen inch instrument under uh, a really dark sky. Um, you'll be able to see some detail in this because a, f- a few weeks back, Mike and I were observing it with his 12 inch and we could definitely see some detail um, at that time. So I, I think this is a, a, a particularly interesting, uh, almost 10th magnitude comet. Typically, I'm not that interested in 10th magnitude comets, um, but this one uh, I think uh, is is displaying a little bit of detail um, for those that have the larger instruments. So well worth uh, checking out if, if, you, uh, if you've got that. All right. So I'm just fixing a spelling error in my notes here. I just noticed that, that I spelled July wrong all over the place, but it's not going to matter anyway, because we have the transcription running, which probably spells July wrong every time. Um, we also have uh, Comet C 2021 P4 Atlas, uh, which will reach perihelion at the end of uh, July. And it's uh, predicted to reach a maximum brightness of magnitude nine around that time. So um, there you go. That's another um, reasonably bright comet. Just put it into your, you're going to have to put that into your astronomy software, or you can go to skyhound.com um, and take a look at uh, at the finer chart um, for that. So uh, 
I, in, in these notes, Shane, I put it on a variable star um, for the month. I don't know if you, uh, this, this came to us from the AAVSO. Didn't know if maybe you want to take it away with the uh, variable star. Sure. Yeah. So this is near M11 and Scutum. Uh, it's one variable star uh, that you can see this month. Uh, so it's R Scudi um, mm-hmm. in the constellation Scutum. Um, so when the English observer E. Peugeot, maybe, um, discovered Maker of the it, car. In yeah, 1795. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, so this was, yeah, discovered 1795. Um, and at that point in time, it was one of only a few known variable stars. Uh, at its brightest, it's uh, a fairly easy star to see. Um, even at its dimmest, though, uh, some 50 times dimmer, uh, you can still see it with some optical aid. So using binoculars would reveal it. Um, it's pretty easy to find, uh, being it lies just a, a degree northwest of uh, the wild duck cluster. So um, it's one of the more famous Messier objects. It's a beautiful cluster to look at. And um, it has its name because uh, the bright stars in the cluster form a V. And if you've ever noticed migrating birds, especially geese, if you're from our region, <laughs> uh, you know, they form these huge V's in the sky when they are uh, migrating, you know, from, from the south and then back home here. Cool. Yeah, cool. yeah. Okay. Um, there's a little more here. So our, our Scutae is uh, the brightest class of variable stars called RV Tori stars uh, after the prototype or first star to be determined of the class. Uh, such stars are a small group of yellow supergiants that are thought to be near the end of their life. Uh, they may provide us with information about the evolution of stars as they transition uh, to white dwarfs in their life cycle. Um, visually, they're characterized by alternating patterns of deep and shallow minima periods uh, of minimum brightness. Uh, our scuti has a period of about 144 days, uh, you know, between kind of maximum and minimum brightness. Uh, for example, uh, every fourth or fifth minimum is exceptionally faint for reasons that are not well understood. Uh, the star seems to be pulsating in at least two superimposed periods. Uh, and this is possibly due to shock waves within the star itself or their interaction with the surrounding cloud of gas and dust. Um, I think the biggest takeaway here, Chris, is that we still have a lot to learn about a lot of stuff in the sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, in particularly, um, you know, the life cycle of, of different classes of stars, um, you know, there's still a lot of research uh, being done to understand that. And um, the variable star observers um, do help with some of that science uh, by contributing light curves uh, which is that minimum maximum as these stars uh, go through their different brightness stages. Cool. And uh, I didn't know, uh, do we have any uh, good double stars for, for this month? Well, there's always, uh, there's always a, a bunch of double stars that are out there. Um, you know, Lyra, there's the double, double. Um, this is uh, w- what's really interesting about these stars. It's two pairs of doubles. Um, so you end up seeing four and they almost look like two sets of twins. Um, and, and they can be a little challenging to split. Sometimes you do have to use uh, a good amount of magnification to get that split. Um, but that's one that I would recommend. Um, what else would there be? Uh, I think we talked a little bit about Graphius, uh, maybe last week or the week before, Mm. Um, that's another one that is, uh, quite interesting because it's a, a three star system and mm-hmm. 
you know, pretty much any small telescope will split uh, two of them, but the AB stars in that three star system are very, uh, very close. And you probably would mm-hmm. have to run at least 200 times magnification and maybe use uh, a larger aperture telescope as well uh, to split them. But uh, it's a neat little system and I recommend that one as well. Cool. Excellent. Um, well, anything else to add to this, our objects to observe in the in the July uh, 2022 night sky, what are you hoping to to get out and taking a look at uh, this summer once we uh, get into some dark skies again? Yeah, no, great question. Uh, first of all, nothing to add. I think this is a really good summary. Okay. Um, as far as what I want to observe, um, so my observing style is changing a little bit. I'm now trying to uh, observe with my bino viewer almost exclusively. Mm. Um, so I, I do want to spend some time with the bino viewer under dark skies, but, um, observing, um, some deep sky objects that I'm quite familiar with. So, uh, I want to look at, you know, the double cluster, a lot of the Messier objects, um, just to see how they appear, um, with that bino viewer. Uh, so I, Mm. you know, I need objects that I I'm familiar with. Um, so I think I'll be doing some of that, but I'm still intrigued by, uh, Stephen James O'Meara, uh, hidden treasures book and the objects that he looked at. So, mm-hmm. uh, he, he used a four inch refractor, which is what I use. And, yeah. um, it's really neat just, uh, to look at some of those objects because, um, you know, the thing with the night skies, there's, there's so much to see. And I think at times we get, um, uh, a bit of a bias for like really mm-hmm. large, really bright, objects. And those are great to look at, but I think sometimes we overlook some other really good objects, uh, you know, that are sometimes even near these other great objects. So, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. the hidden treasures, I think focuses a bit on that sort of category, you know, often overlooked things that, um, are, are really cool, even in a four inch telescope. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. And, and for me, I'm, uh, working on, uh, well, I, I put out a list a number of years ago, um, in the RESC observers handbook called wide field wonders. And, um, you know, one thing I'd always kind of hope to do is revisit that. And I thought it'd be great if I could do sketches at the time I, I was, I was still learning to sketch and my sketches weren't that great, but I think they've, they've come along fairly good since then. Uh, it's been about, I think about nine years since I first put that out. And the other thing is, is that I, I had hoped to find like a astrophotographer to actually take some images of this stuff to, to give a really good presence. And I know some people have sort of taken some photos of them just as they work through the list. And then, um, you know, recently I, I've been receiving just a few sort of random astrophotos from people that, uh, that include those objects and other objects. And I thought, you know, could be a good opportunity for me to kind of go through and, and revisit revisit those. I think there's like about 40 objects or something like that over the next year and properly sketch those. And then um, just there's so many more people doing astro photos right now that, you know, I wouldn't kind of have to find like that dedicated person. I, I you know, I think I might be able to thread through um, the astro photos that, uh, that people are sending me um, in album format oftentimes of many, many things and uh, be able to find most of those and then maybe get the odd person to, to take a shot and kind of put those together in, in a little bit better of a, of a compendium of, of really interesting wide field uh, objects. Hmm. Yeah. That sounds uh, really interesting. Yeah. So that's a little project. And like I said, I've, I've uh, kind of recently cobbled together uh, a really old and expensive 
uh, wide field telescope sort of <laughs> as a bit of a fun project to do um, this spring and, uh, you know, kind of excited to kind of see what uh, what it might be able to do. So, yeah, looking uh, looking forward to that. And as well, as always, taking a look at the uh, at the summer Milky Way, which mm-hmm. usually uh, when we get down to grasslands, uh, we usually kill a pretty good part of a night uh, just cruising up and down, um, you know, sort of that magical uh uh, bright white Milky Milky Way and the star clouds we can see from dark skies, eh? Yeah, yeah. The, there's nothing better really <laughs> than than panning through the Milky Way. It's just it's incredible in the summertime. Excellent. Anything else to add, Shane? That is all. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks uh, to everybody for listening, and uh, be sure to to subscribe to the Actual Astronomy uh, podcast in your pod catching software. And we're always excited to get your observing emails and, and what you're taking a look at this summer. Uh, maybe what you hope to take a look at this summer, you can send those into actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>